0: This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long. I am here with my intrepid co pilot for this series, Timothy. Thank you, Timothy, for joining me, for being so long-suffering, and being willing to do this with me. You're welcome. Uh, so for those of you who have not yet listened to Timothy's other episode, we did an episode together with Matt Langston called Out of the Closet, in which Timothy shared his story of coming out of the closet, his theological transformation, and, uh, and so on. Now, this is going to be a really big series. Uh, we're covering the Revoice Conference. The Revoice Conference uh, was a conference that happened in July of 2018. It was about bringing together LGBT people who affirm the traditional ethic on homosexuality. So in gay Christian lingo, what is often called side B. So side A is the idea that gay relationships are morally equivalent to heterosexual relationships. God blesses them. Whereas side B is different it says you know you didn't choose to be gay but this is a manifestation of brokenness or incompleteness in your life or at the very least having a same-sex relationship is not god's best for you and you therefore must be celibate or in an opposite or in or in a mixed orientation marriage with someone of the opposite sex so we have a lot to talk about here And um, I, I need to make a few preliminary statements before we get started. Thing the first, I am really concerned about the ideas and theology espoused by Revoice and we'll probably be spending the next several episodes. I don't know how many episodes this will be, but I'll probably be spending the next several episodes discussing that, talking about that. But before we get into that, let me just say the things that I like about Revoice and that I like about this approach to homosexuality. I affirm that celibacy is a valid calling for some people. I absolutely support people in their decision to be celibate. I think that they are perfectly within their right to be celibate and I w- want to support them if that is the life that they feel is meant for them. And I am grateful that there is a place for them for people who are called to celibacy. And I'm grateful that there is a place for LGBT people called to celibacy. I want there to be a place where they can feel safe and secure and as a general rule, I tend to believe that people are doing the best they can with what life has given to them. So that is what I believe about those who do not agree with the progressive sexual ethic. Even though I strongly disagree with them, I value the fact that they are doing the best they can with what they feel like they've been given. And I respect that. The next thing that I need to say is, um, you know, we're, we're not going to pretend to be anything we're not. We're not theologians. This probably won't be a total response to every single point. This is, we're just two guys with a microphone giving our blow by blow response to the revoice conference and the next thing I need to say is this is really hard for me okay I went through the ex-gay world and then I went through the gay celibate world and both fucked me up pretty equally in my opinion you know both were incredibly hard for me and kind of the research leading up to this episode was some of the hardest research that I've ever done this is some of the this is I think the hardest show I've done so far like this shit triggers me it is very very hard for me because while I have healed over the years a lot of it is still raw and engaging in this stuff brought up a lot of stuff and hopefully I'll talk I'll be able to talk about that some but I just say this because I might not be as lucid and clear as I usually am. <laughs> I, I might not be able to be my usual detached, lucid, analytical self. And so I apologize in advance if I'm not able to think as clearly as usual. I want to explore our disagreements and agreements. I want to explore the contours of our agreements and disagreements. And I'm going to try to do that with as little contempt as possible. I might do it with some anger, but I will try to do it without contempt and uh, I'll do my best. Finally, this might be a really hard episode for some people who are still, you know, getting over their, the trauma that they lived through in the ex-gay world and in gay celibacy. If you're working through the pain of that, this might not be the episode for you. All right. Well, I think that's just about everything. All right, so so uh, let's just go ahead and get into it here. What we've done is we've watched the three main keynotes from the Revoice conference and we are just going to discuss them. We both took extensive notes, or at least I took extensive notes. And then if you know if I miss something, then hopefully Timothy will be able to fill in the gaps. So there is so much that we can talk about here. There is a ton of stuff. Here and there are more videos that we could have covered. There's also the really interesting side of this issue where the Christian right had a very negative reaction to the Revoice conference. Uh, and so they issued a lot of really so what I would call, you know, cruel and homophobic criticisms of Revoice from the right. Uh, I wish. You know, I wish we had time to cover that, but unfortunately we don't. So maybe down the line we will be able to cover that, but not right now. So the first lecture here, the first talk was a testimony from a woman who was married to a gay man, and this woman is named Amber Carroll. And so Timothy, if I'm wondering if you could give us a basic outline of this talk.
1: Amber shared the story of you know, having fallen in love with a guy in her youth group, who then professed to her that uh, he was same-sex attracted. And she tells the story of the gradual uh, decay of that relationship and the effects it had upon her, her young child, her child yet to be born because their separation and divorce occurred as she was as she was with child, and it's a testimony to the presence of God to sustain her through a difficult time. Yeah. And it was beautiful in in the sense that it was a very positive expression of the body of Christ reaching out to someone who was going through, you know, a really hellacious situation. And yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. And appreciated that. I also appreciated Amber's ability to articulate that even though she she lives with the reality of you know a true kind of unequal yoking mm. she has not become bitter yes. towards lgBTq people in fact has a real heart for them yeah the the one thing <clears throat> I did take away from it was you know her her sorrow over her husband, Cody's current lifestyle, choices, relationship with God, relationship with his children, and, you know, my big takeaway from the from, from the testimony was no one ever said something as simple as, you know, it would have been best if this gay man hadn't married a woman. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. It just, you know, like, because she, because it really was something of, of a lit, litany of the horrors of what happens yes when the only options deemed worthy mm. is get married stuff it as far down inside of you as you can possibly do it mm-hmm. marshal on and yet to hear her story I mean I was sitting there listening to the story and going you're really making a pretty good argument for why gay people shouldn't just out of no other option enter into a quote unquote mixed sex relationship and marriage. Mixed orientation. Mixed orientation marriage.
0: marriage. Yeah. And and yet that that never really gotten got verbalized yeah I was th- so I was thinking the exact same thing and actually the first thing that I thought when I listened to this first was oh my God what have I made Timothy listen to <laughs> because like I was because the the previous show that we did was your story of being a married gay man to a woman and leaving that marriage now you're still very close with your wife you still do life with your wife but you are no longer living together no and so just the raw pain that amber expressed was intense and the first thing i thought was like oh god what have i made <laughs> timothy wilds listen to but at the
1: same time it was it was listening to something that i really get and and you know In your introductory comments, you were talking about how listening to this rhetoric of a very specific of, excuse me, I should say of a very specific ideological bent. Yeah. Was like a roller coaster ride for you. And, you know, in some ways, it's proven to be more therapeutic for me than I thought it was going to be because all of the language was very familiar. And all of the keynotes. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. In fact, I thought, I probably said things just like this. Because that's what mm-hmm. I was told to think and to say and believe and regurgitate. Yeah, I remember you saying a yeah. lot of things like that. Yeah. and I mean, I said them too. Absolutely. Because we were good Yeah. at being something <laughs> that we were not capable of being. <laughs> um, we were damn good at it. Yes, we um, were. But the bottom line is... As I listened to all of these three testimonies and these three keynote speakers, what kept bubbling up to the top of my mind was, you know, you all seem to really be reading from the same playbook. Yeah. There's a real consistency here in terms of baseline presuppositions upon which all this works. Yes. And... You know, as you know from my story and from the theological metamorphosis that I went through, and the and the biblical interpretive metamorphosis that I went through, I could listen to it and go, "Hmm, well, you might be right," <laughs> and you know what? You might be wrong. Yeah. You might be wrong, and as a friend of mine is is very good at reminding me about the choice he has made having come out of the same world that we have come out of. And by that, I mean the conservative Southern evangelical world. You know, I'm making a choice to go in a different direction than the church and the theology of my childhood told me to go. And that theology basically put everything on the foundation of grace. Right. So here I go. And if it's actually true, then it's gonna cover me in this decision too. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, because here's the thing. If if Christ died for our sins, but did not die for our intellect, even though we are doing the best we can to understand correctly, then he isn't actually a savior. There's a cap on his atonement. So if he can't cover this, then he isn't a savior. If we if he can't cover our minds that, you know, despite how much we try to get the truth right, but Fail, despite our best efforts, if he can't cover that, then he isn't really a savior. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things about Amber's testimony that I also really appreciated, like through the entire testimony, I mean, it, it was this really heartbreaking story where she talks about how she met Cody in college and became best friends and then they started dating and then he told her that he's attracted to men and then they got married and he assumed that that would somehow fix it or make it better and then things just fell apart for them and she said that she found a lot of her identity within marriage and that being wife was very important to her that that was a really central part of her life and then it all fell apart she said that she sank into this horrific depression and, and that Losing that identity as wife and that her whole family just falling apart and she had two small children when Cody left her. It's a heartbreaking story. One of the things that I really appreciated about her story is that it's like the entire time I was listening, I was waiting for her to turn the story around and be like... But then Cody realized that it was time to return to me and that he needed to respect his vows and that it was time for, you know, and and that, you know, God saved our marriage because so often I hear these stories turn that way. And that's fine if they do turn that way. But then it becomes a model for straight people to say, well, then that's the model for all LGBT people. Mm-hmm. Do, do you follow? Do you, Absolutely. You? And so I'm. I was really relieved and kind of pleasantly surprised that that is not what happened here.
1: No, this is this is a very real story. Living through it myself, this is a very real story. And you know, I'm I'm equally empathetic, in in terms of you know what the in terms of the picture of Cody's spiritual life and spiritual health that. You know amber relays in her testimony because you know i've said this to you many times you know doing what i've done at my advanced age of 58 you know what what is it that that i that i hope to do by telling my story is i hope to help men and women who are same-sex attracted to not leap at what they perceive to be the only you know the only approved option for them, which is to look as heterosexual as you can. Yeah. Because at some point, I don't know if I don't know if Amber would want to say out loud, you know, we probably shouldn't have married. Mm. And there's always a part of me that thinks, you know, the restrictions that were placed upon Cody and his orientation and how how virtually, you know. <laughs> short the list of options were for him. How did that contribute to his spiritual health today?
0: Yeah. I'm really curious to know Cody's story. Like, I'm, I'm really, really curious to hear how Cody would tell this story. Absolutely. I definitely recommend everyone go back and listen to the Out of the Closet series because while you aren't Cody at all, and I honestly, I think you treated your family and have been treating your family much better than Cody treated his family. It's it's still kind of the other side. It's still kind of the other perspective on this.
1: I think at some level, the path Cody took is probably more normal. Yeah. It's more, or, you know, and this is this is where I, I always want to fight back a little bit and say it's almost what the culture, and by that I also mean the culture of the evangelical church, would expect him to do. Yeah. And so often I have a hard time separating what's expected and what maybe he would have chosen. Mm. That's oftentimes a, a conundrum to me. Because I want to say, you know, what, well, let me make this point and then I'll, I'll finish that thought. One of the things that I noticed about all of these testimonies and keynote addresses is that there was no hesitation on the part of any of these speakers to just tell the church just how badly they have dealt with LGBTQ people. Yeah, and I do really appreciate it, that. I mean, it was not, it was not, <laughs> it was not. Gloved at all. I mean, it was straight to it. And I thought, you go. Thank you. Yes. Just lay it out there. Yeah. And taking them to task and lamenting what has happened and begging that you know, we might do better in the future. So I really appreciated that.
0: Yeah, I did too. Yeah, and and, you know, one of the things that I do often have to come back to is despite how dangerous uh, I think the traditional sexual ethic is on homosexuality, when it comes to other LGBT people who hold it, we're really 70%... Together Mm -hmm. on a lot of stuff, you know, we're all gay, we're all experiencing this marginalization, we're all trying to figure out this life as best we can. And I'm reminded of that when I hear them tell these stories of horrible treatment at the hands of the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we agree on the what. The what is we want to live a life of flourishing and acceptance. I think we disagree on the how. Oh yeah. And I think the I I think that disagreement is pretty big. I think that that is substantial and and not without, you know, consequences. But it needs to be said that I think we're 70% together on this. That we're we agree on more than we disagree. One of the things that kept floating to the top
1: as I as I listen to all of this is how often I heard the recurring use of the words obedience as obeying the commands of God the law of God in order to be blessed I mean that that kept coming through the the concept of surrender yeah the concept of of letting go, of sacrificing. And please don't misunderstand me. I am very orthodox, little o, in my Christian theology. I believe in all of those concepts. But having gone through the metamorphosis that I've gone through, I have to say that that lingo again for me
0: actually started to raise anxiety i'm so glad you bring that up and i actually have a lot of notes on that later okay that's yeah fine. no i and so that no that's a huge topic and and i think that yeah we'll definitely return mm-hmm, to that mm-hmm. there were lots of things that amber said here that i that i think are good she said that she has learned and has been called by god to love cody Mm-hmm. And and to keep loving him, and and even though she doesn't necessarily agree with his life, to to keep loving him, and I thought that was good. I can imagine that it's very painful for her and for Cody. I can imagine that for Cody that feels really conditional. I can imagine for Cody that that is a hurtful love. That she loves him, but is not able to probably you know embrace his partner fully or you know and all that stuff and i can imagine i am in that position with a lot of people and it hurts a lot so i won't say that it is perfect but i will say it's a start she said one thing here at the very end that i thought was just so powerful and and so i i just transcribed this from the video because i i think it really sums up kind of the the pain that is at the heart of this story she says, let me be very candid with you. The darkness still creeps in a lot. There are days when self-harm seems like a good option. There are days when I don't love Cody anymore. I still have a lot of unanswered whys. I still struggle with deep-seated anger, rage, towards Cody, the church, and towards God. I am incredibly lonely much of the time. Sometimes God seems totally absent. There are days that I'm tired and weary. I just want to stop and be comfortable. But God continually encourages me to keep running. And she says that God keeps reminding her that he is what makes the suffering bearable. I appreciate her honesty. I also really grieve for the fact that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know that this is little consolation for her and for Cody. Um, sorry, people, the the fridge just came on. <laughs> we, uh, we are recording in an apartment. Sorry about that. So I grieve for the fact that it is necessary, even though that's probably very little consolation to Amanda. Amber. Amber, sorry, to Amber and to Cody. But I wish that we lived in a world where this kind of pain wasn't necessary, where people wouldn't feel feel obligated to marry someone of the opposite sex so very good point yeah so i think those are really all my thoughts on on this lecture do you have any more thoughts
1: well it it's not related very specifically to you know the marriage between amber and cody as unequally yoked in terms of sexual attraction but it was it was how dominantly she spoke of Wanting marriage to be this solution for so much of her insecurity. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well that's just that's just a perennial problem. Yes In, <laughs> in the world, that's a perennial issue related related to relationships of all types. Hmm. Thinking of relationships as solution. Yes. And oftentimes relationship is taking on a challenge. Taking on a
0: problem. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and I know that we'll this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves, and I will probably get back to this at some point. But one of the things that I hear so often from people on the traditional ethic is that I took the easy way out for choosing a gay relationship. Let me just clarify right here: choosing a monogamous relationship that you are committed to, despite how hard it might become, is not the easy way out. I heard this inferred. I heard a lot of things inferred, but I don't know if it is what they actually meant uh, throughout these talks. And one thing that I heard is I went for a gay relationship because I don't have enough close male friendships and I don't know if that's what they said but that's something that I think might have been inferred or at least I heard it and we'll cover that later another thing that I heard repeatedly come up is this idolatry of marriage and sex and I think intrinsic within that is this assumption or at least it's very hard for people not to hear it as intrinsic I I think something that is very implicit in that is therefore the gay community is idolatrous of sex and marriage and that isn't true either. Mm-hmm. At least it isn't true for me. I don't believe that John is going to fulfill my each and every need, and he doesn't. Do I still experience loneliness within partnership? Yes, of course I do. Loneliness is part of the human condition, and my partnership is not going to to fix that. Mm-hmm. However... is a different there are different kinds of suffering and i've decided and i've discovered that the suffering the refining suffering of doing life with another human being with whom you have erotic and emotional and physical and verbal you know just intimacy all the ways in which you do life together and the refining Finding, self-sacrificing, ongoing process of doing life with another single human being, that's fucking hard. Mm-hmm. And it is so good for me. And I'm many times a better person than I would be otherwise. And it isn't out of idolatry. It isn't because I believe marriage will fix me. I believe I'm pretty whole without marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe I'm pretty okay. But at the same time, it makes me a better person. And so while there are times of suffering, I think it is ultimately a better suffering than the suffering of living in isolation and loneliness and at le- and without a partner. And at least that is the case for me. I'm not speaking for other people in that. You and I have talked about this many
1: times, and the baseline Christian theology for me affirms the fact that we are built, literally made in the image of a community, i.e. the Trinity. The Godhead. And therefore, the notion that we can be self-satisfying and happy
0: alone is not true for most people. Yeah. Not true for most people. It, it's simply, it's simply a, a reality of life.
1: Therefore, if you want to be refined in terms of your character, get into a relationship. Yeah. If you don't want to be refined, stay out of a relationship. Yeah, because then all you have to do is take care of yourself. Yeah. You don't have to think about anybody else or better yet, forget relationships, just stay out of community. Yes. You know, this is why and I'll just say this bluntly, this is why the mega church of the American later 20th and yes, sadly but true, it still continues today mm-hmm. into the 21st century is a haven for baby boomers and some of their children. Many of their children have just... Fucked off. Yeah. They've, just, they've run <laughs> they are, as far they as they, they, are they can go. Done. That's exactly true. You know why megachurches are so popular? They are havens for people who don't want a relationship with anyone. Mm, yeah. Because you can show up in that arena-sized audience when you want, if you want, as long as you want. And it is a perfect place for anonymity. Yeah, exactly. Well... Hello, that is not a characteristic of the church. Yeah. A church is a place of being uncomfortably known Mm. Mm -hmm. and required to know others uncomfortably to a point of self-denial, self-emptying, sacrifice. Yes. Wow. Three words not particularly popular in 21st American culture. Yeah. That's why we want to build walls and fences and burn bridges and offend our neighbors and push those people out and tell those people they can't come in. So, I mean, we are not by nature people who want to deny ourselves, empty ourselves, And give up ourselves.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, basically, we are in agreement with a lot of revoice that that life and the life of a Christian, the life of a person with integrity requires self-sacrifice and a cutting down of idols. Like, we're right there with you. We totally agree with that. Where we we disagree is the method. Mm Mm-hmm yeah all right well so there's one other speaker in this session and that is eve tushnet eve tushnet has kind of been on the on the uh gay celibate scene for a really long time as one of those gay celibate speakers she's a catholic and, and like and i never heard her speak I, i've read a lot of her writing but i've never heard her speak and like when she came on to the stage, I instantly liked her. Like, she's this down-to-earth hipster Catholic woman and and just really cool. The kind of person I feel like I'd like to share a beer with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's really, really cool. So she starts by saying that she was not raised Christian. She eventually came to the Catholic faith, and she accepted the Catholic Church's teachings on homosexuality. But she says that because she was raised outside of the church, that she didn't have a lot of the shame and self-loathing associated with with her sexuality. And so a lot of the baggage that many people raised in the church have regarding their sexuality. She didn't have and I think the implication here is that because of that it is easier for her to conform to the traditional sexual ethic because she doesn't have the baggage there. She said that that should horrify us. She said that that should just absolutely horrify us that people outside of the church have less sexual shame than people within the church and I agree with her that is absolutely horrifying and I've heard other self. Gay people say that I've heard of, you know, there's one person in particular that I'm thinking of who was raised outside the church, and then he became Eastern Orthodox. And he's essentially said the exact same thing that he adheres to the traditional teaching on homosexuality, but he doesn't have the shame associated with homosexuality. So he doesn't f- it's more easy for him, I guess. It's easier for him, I guess. So she goes on to say, and here's a quote, one of the things that it took me a long while to realize, and that is very hard for a lot of gay people, is that God is working in our lives, in and through our longings for same-sex love, intimacy, tenderness, and to share our lives with someone of the same sex. And so this thing that is the most painful point in LGBT people's lives, God is working through that. This was the first point During the research that I felt the first pang of a lot of intense emotion. And I don't know why. This is when I started to, when that hurt started to be really prodded. And I'm not entirely sure why. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to have to take some time to articulate it. Hopefully I'll be able to get it out during this process. But that, that was the, when she said that, that was the first moment of like a stab. And I don't even really know why and I can't articulate it. But that's when when it happened for me. She says that many of the things that gay people believe separate them from the love of God are actually the things that God is working directly through. But she says that there are appropriate and inappropriate ways within scripture, presented within scripture for us to uh, experience intimacy and love with the same sex. And so she says that there are very obvious ways in which the Bible condemns same-sex love. Obvious to her. It isn't obvious to me. It isn't obvious to a lot of people, but it's obvious to her that sexual interaction with people of the same sex is off limits. But then she says uh, that there are patterns within scripture for same sex love that are available to gay people. She points to David and Jonathan and that there is an emotional richness there in David and Jonathan. She talks about Ruth and Naomi and then she talks about John's relationship with Jesus. Uh, So these are the big three relationships within scripture, same sex relationships that she uses as models for gay people. Okay, I have some thoughts. Proceed. (laughs) Um, I appreciate the emphasis on friendship. I really do. I think that one of the things that did really help me was the emphasis on friendship and community. And I have carried this with me into my progressive faith. And I've carried that with me into my new faith. I still deeply value friendship and I still deeply value connection. I'm a very interconnected person. So I value that. Here's the thing. I often hear people talk about these deep, intimate, rich relationships between the sexes uh, as if gay people don't have them, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that is what she is saying, but it is what is often said. So I feel the need here to to kind of say, I have incredibly deep, intimate friendships. You are one of them. Mm-hmm. You and I go out to coffee for hours every single week. And if we miss a week, I feel like there's something missing from my life. Right. Like you, you've been—you've become like a staple of my life. And you're a very, very dear friend to me. Matt Langston, uh, who comes onto the show sometimes and does the music for the show and host of Eleventy Life. He's one of my very, very best friends. I would die for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I dream about him. As a best friend, Mm -hmm. he's so great a friend. And I have lots of friends like this, such great friends that I dream about them, that the love I have for them even creeps into my subconscious when Mm -hmm. I sleep. I have incredibly rich relationships. Here's the thing, though. I couldn't have those relationships until I also opened myself up to sexual relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for me, I couldn't have one without the other. And I don't know why that is, but I have a theory that love is an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I have a theory that love is this interconnected ecosystem and that repression is not a fine instrument, but it is a blunt instrument. And when you try to repress one part or try to shut down one part or block one part of yourself, it's going to block other things as well connectedness, interconnectedness, creativity, spirituality, and so on. And it's going to lead to a great deal of suffering. I'm not saying that's the way it is for everyone, but I'm definitely saying that's the way it was for me. So I was intensely lonely when I was in the traditional ethic on homosexuality, and it wasn't for lack of people who loved me. Mm -hmm. I had lots of people who loved me. It wasn't for lack of support and caring, kind people. It was just the nature of the thing itself. And it wasn't until I finally accepted that I could have a meaningful sexual relationship with another man that now suddenly I have these profound relationships Mm -hmm. that are non-sexual with other people and that isn't everyone's story but it's my story and if you resonate with it or if you feel like there's a ping there like it like it might connect with you in some way i invite you to pursue that and to investigate that
1: you know this i'm so glad you're talking about this because this was this was sort of my takeaway from this as well first of all i applaud her for having a conversation about the beauty and richness of same-sex relationships which i think have suffered greatly in the American Christian culture for fear, well, because of so much homophobia. Right. For this this great distrust, this, you know, that my child will develop this relationship and, you know, it'll flower into something and, you know, and then everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. So this kind of isolatory kind of raising of children and, you know, not wanting them to be too close, too familiar, I think I think we are a culture that suffers from intense isolation and loneliness.
0: I agree. I think there's an I think there's a loneliness epidemic going on right now,
1: and I think related to this, Stephen, is the concept that and I can you know, I just speak from experience some learning, but largely experience. I was a card carrying member of this camp that we're talking about, yeah. So I know something about what the, you know, what the Dakota ring was you wore and what, you know, how, how, and the special glasses you looked at things through. (laughs) And so I, I got it. And it's, it's, it's the fact that I think with, within that camp, there is a great discomfort with the notion of talking about sexual orientation and sexual preference on a spectrum.
0: Yeah, that's true. We
1: are we are basically a kind of sexual blender with two buttons. <laughs> two <laughs> buttons. And one is called straight and the other one's called crooked. Right. Or as people wanted to call it gay. But the opposite of straight is crooked, so let's just call it what it is. That was that was that was done on purpose to send a
0: message. That was done on purpose by the culture.
1: But anyway, you, there's two buttons. There is no continuum here. Therefore, you know, the concept that boys can be in a scout troop and boys can experiment and boys can play and boys can find out things they didn't know about themselves is horrifying. Yeah. But guess what? It happens. And we can't stop it. And we can't stop it because the fact is, in a scout troop of 50 boys, not everyone's not every one of them is the blender with the button straight pushed down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the problem is there is so much fear. Yeah. Because one is, oh, I live in a world where sexual orientation and sexual attraction only comes in two flavors. Only two flavors. And therefore, i got to make sure that my child is a very specific flavor. Yeah. So experimentation, questions, wonder... What are we talking about? These are scary words. We don't use those words <laughs> because what if I find out my child isn't? Yeah. What I always said they were going to be. So listening to so her we, talk, so, so we discourage yes. this kind of relationship building between the sexes. I mean, I don't know if I'm way off course on this, but this is one of the takeaways for me hearing her talk. Was going. She's trying to get us. To reacquaint ourselves with the notion of a kind of non-erotic, same-sex love, and we live in a culture that has no concept of what that is. Yeah. We've lost the ability to comprehend that, and I think it's fear that has squelched it.
0: It's so interesting. My, I have so many complicated emotions here because I listen to Eve talk, and I am like cheering Because of the stuff that you just said. And she's trying to invite the church into a place of being able to entertain that there are ways to have same-sex intimacy and love. At the same time, I have misgivings. Because the idea that same-sex friendship and non-sexual intimacy is the answer for gay relationships as a whole, I think severely misses the mark and misses the mark in such a way that can be quite dangerous because implicit within the traditional ethic and i know that there are traditional people who will disagree with me on this but maybe we'll get into this later for me my understanding of a traditional ethic is that it is considered to be universal murder is wrong for everyone right lust right. is wrong for everyone uh, envy is wrong for everyone Same sex, sexual relationships are wrong for everyone, right? Right. Okay, so that is implicit in this. That is implicit in what she's saying. If someone says they adhere to the church's traditional teaching on homosexuality, that's what that's saying. And if what they're actually saying is, well, no, I've chosen it for myself, but I don't think it's mandatory for you. That's not actually the traditional ethic. That's something different. And it should probably, in my opinion, it should be called something else. Mm -hmm. So implicit here is the command that all gay people, a people the size of a small country globally— This is an entire people group telling them you should be celibate, get rid of sexual relationships, and instead, you know, just have this intimate friendship. Okay, this is where this goes off the rails in a really bad way for me. And and I think that there's very serious ethical concerns here. What if we were to just tell all the straight people, all the straight people in the world, you know, live after the model of St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, Right? Right. Okay, so for people who don't know, St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, some of the church's greatest mystics and saints, they were soulmates. They really were. They were partnered. They were. They had this profound emotional bond. Maybe they had sex, but I believe them when they say they didn't. I, I believe that they were stayed committed to their vows. I have no reason not to believe that. That is valuable and good and profound and can be a model for so many people. That is, There is a huge step but from that to then saying all straight people just don't have sex, forego it, forgo it and just have this meaningful, intimate friendship with people of the opposite sex. How do you think that would go down? How do you think that will work? It isn't going to work. And this is where I often come up against a wall here. Well, it does, it does also, you know, guarantee the end of the human race. Yeah, well, there's that too. <laughs> there is a real downside. There is a this. real downside. <laughs> but so, Eve, I'm with you. I'm with you here that friendship is good and to quote C.S. Lewis that it is one of the most the highest and most spiritual of loves in his book The Four Loves and he has this fantastic chapter on friendship and I agree that We are in an epidemic of loneliness, and that these biblical stories of same-sex love are meaningful and powerful and significant, and they are available to everyone gay and straight alike, and yes, they are available to people who are celibate as well. That I'm okay with. I am not okay with the leap to something that I see as ethically dubious, which is to demand that of an entire people group. And people may say that that is not actually what this is doing. People may say that that they are not actually demanding celibacy of an entire people group. Well, I'm sorry, that isn't the traditional ethic. If that's what you believe, if you say I'm celibate and that is my personal conviction, but it isn't true for you, then that isn't the traditional ethic. And or maybe you are able to compartmentalize it in another way, where and people do this all the time. We do this all the time with hell, for example. You know, where we compartmentalize that everyone's going to, uh, you know, experience hellfire for all eternity, but you know, we're just really chummy with them anyway and we're somehow able to compartmentalize and you'll go on to beer and have a really great time with all these sinners and just not be bothered by the fact that they're going to to suffer in cosmic gas chambers for the rest of eternity that doesn't bother us okay so the human mind is really good at compartmentalizing things And if that's the case, that's fine. However, if you say something is the traditional ethic, don't be surprised that this is how we hear it. Mm -hmm. And so this is where I run into a serious problem because I think that is an ethical disaster. What are the societal consequences of telling an entire people group to not experience sexual intimacy? I can only infer two things from this. One, we're okay saying this because we assume that gay people are in a uniquely different category and have a fundamentally different experience of the world from straight people, right? Okay. Does that make sense? <laughs> it make it makes me laugh, but yes, it makes sense. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like either we're saying we're we're demanding this of gay people, but not of sh- but would never demand this of straight people because we believe that there's a fundamental difference between the two and that the experience of being gay is somehow fundamentally less than or different from the experience of straight heterosexuality. And therefore, there's this double standard. Mm-hmm. Or there's just a radical miscalculation of the human experience in general, mm-hmm. right? There is a misplaced understanding of the human experience of sex. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been, okay, I've been doing progressive gay screeching about this exact subject literally for like six years. And I have yet to hear a good response. Mm-hmm. I have yet to hear something that has put my conscience at ease about this. I cannot demand this of an entire people group because I think that is an ethical disaster. Mm-hmm. And I think it has horrific consequences for the world. And for the gay community, if you want to uh, stop, if you want to reduce sexual abuse, if you want to reduce the spread of sexual disease, if you want to reduce HIV, tell gay people to be monogamous or at the very least have safe, wholesome, caring sex. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. the answer in my mind. Can I make a couple of comments? Absolutely. Sorry, people. The fridge just turned back on. (laughs) well we might we we might go into another room for the next episode
1: (laughs) well one one of the things that your comments bring to my mind is you know if there is this great divide between the so-called straight and the so-called crooked then it's almost as if god in his her it them they whatever pronoun you want to use design of us because don't you dare try to tell me that I chose this this is this is how I arrived thank you very much then I was implanted with a different kind of sexual desire sexual need sexual hunger sexual whatever you want to say yeah and according to this traditional ethic mine's broken Mm mm-hmm so the crooked people have the broken one, and the straight people have the functioning, healthy one. So therefore, that gives them the right to say that. Well, I shouldn't be using a broken or warped or unnatural thing. So you should forego it. Now, I would also like to say this: if that is true, which I do not believe is true, but if that if that were true, I think that reflects quite badly on my God. Yeah. And so you are demeaning his character by saying to me, here, Stephen, here's your sexual orientation. Here's your sexual desire. Here's your sexual passion. Sorry, but it came from the factory broken, but I had to put it in anyway. Yeah. And I could turn it off, but I'll just leave it running. <laughs> and, and I hope it goes well for you. By the way, uh, you can't do anything about it or can you do anything
0: with it? To that point, I had a friend who tried to chemically castrate himself Ooh. just because of that. Gosh. Because he believed that it was fundamentally unacceptable and broken. But he is such, a, he's such an intensely sexual person that he felt like the only way was to take matters into his own hands and get rid of it himself. Fortunately, he did not succeed in that. Mm. But it happens. And, you know, I... Commend all of the people at this conference who would object to saying that you are fundamentally unworthy and broken because you have same sex attraction. I commend that. What I would encourage you to consider is the possibility that your intentions might not change the messaging here. Mm-hmm. You can't say that one's sexuality is, in the words of the Catholic Church, intrinsically disordered, and expect that to not horrifically damage a young person struggling with their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. You can't expect that to not just deeply hurt and destroy people. And so, now, and so no matter how much we may say we are all equally loved, we're all equally broken, sorry, that will never be what's communicated at least in my opinion. You know, this was, this was one of the other
1: threads that, that ran through these talks, is even though there was this, this word of encouragement not to, you know, perpetuate this thought process of, you know, you are damaged, you are, you know, loathsome, you are an abomination. You know, I mean, there was, there, was, there, was, there, was, there was speech that talked about thinking better of oneself than we have traditionally been allowed to think of ourselves. But at the same time, I still heard a fair amount of language about brokenness and sinfulness and, you know, these desires being broken, these desires being sinful. And that felt like a very mixed message to me because basically what you're telling me is that which lives very much in a vibrant way inside of me, this thing that I don't flip it on, it just happens it's how i am literally wired yeah you're you're telling me that you're telling me that one of the basic ingredients of my composition is faulty yeah i mean all of this talk and you want and at some point you know i did want to sort of knock on the screen of my phone as i was listening and say excuse me excuse me (laughs) can i say something (laughs) have you it almost seems like you all have forgotten that we're sexual beings. Deeply sexual beings.
0: If I may if I may say something to that point, every other mammal on this planet, female mammal, goes into heat for a season. And that's the point at which they can have sex. Not human beings. <laughs> we are evolved to have sex at any time, any day, anywhere, at any time of the year. Human males have genitals on the outside of their body. This is a cooling and heating system for the sperm so that we can have sex anytime, <laughs> anywhere, any day, okay? This is so deeply embedded in our species. As the author, I can't remember his name right now, but as the author of Sex at Dawn says, uh, we don't just act like apes, we are apes. <laughs> we are apes, we are chimps. 1% of DNA is all that separates us from chimps and when we look at our closest cousins they are deeply sexual Mm -hmm. and okay we are closer to chimps than indian elephants are to african elephants Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's extraordinary so the point being we are uniquely sexual in the animal kingdom we are intensely more sexual than just about every other mammal out there, yeah. other than maybe the bonobos, <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, so so just, it doesn't line up with the facts. It doesn't line up with what the holy scripture of reality yeah. says about human nature. Exactly. So it's,
1: it's almost like you, you hear these people talking in ways that makes human sexuality almost disconnected to human life and as if as if we can draw it into ourselves you know as we wish but it doesn't sort of always carry with us and part of me is going i don't know what your life is like but that's not the way mine is yeah and and therefore oh my goodness i i i just want to ask them some questions and say now you know, what you're saying, you know, I mean, you're speaking with such authority and you're saying things that, you know, if you have any sensitivity to biblical teaching, it certainly, you know, gives you pause and you think about what you're saying. But at another part, I'm going, now, when you're not on stage saying these things, do you ever just get
0: turned on by somebody? And I'm sure that they would say yes. And I've heard them say yes, but... And in that moment then are you seated before
1: a judge and are you condemned yeah about that i don't i don't know about that feeling because the feeling is like it's living it's part of living
0: and you know i here's one of the things that really tripped me up when i was when i was in the traditional gay ethic because i heard a lot of people say no the response is natural you should embrace it but the sex act is Not okay. And and that just really kind of fucked me up because where's the line? Where is the line in the spectrum of, of sex and fantasy? Of course, there is at some point a difference between the two, but it exists on such a blurry continuum that I realized that it's impossible for me to say, I can be a sexual being, but the manifestation of the sex act is evil. And sinful that to me is so logically inconsistent either it's all acceptable within reason of course it would be prone to all the same distortions and obsessions of natural human sexuality but it would be as a whole okay or it's all sinful Mm -hmm. and i don't really see like There being this middle ground, the way a lot of people seem to do, I understand why that, why they exist in that middle ground between saying the experience of homosexuality internally is okay or is not sinful, but the external experience of it is not. I get it because for me, that was the only way I could be sane. Hmm. For me, that was the only way I could live a sustainable life because I felt like the sexual ethic was this unmovable block. And so I think for me, and I only speak for myself here, I'm not speaking for other people. But for me, I believed this, that my orientation, my experience of sexuality was okay, but not the physical manifestation of it. I believed that because that was the only way I could survive. But don't you feel like that's that's a tremendous amount of cognitive
1: intellectual yeah. Gym, gymnastics? Yeah. Because it's, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's very it's very <laughs> difficult to say, you know... I look at a man, I'm aroused by his presence and for me to go further and to, you know, show and receive pleasure from him would be wrong. It's very difficult to see sort of the inspiration of something and then the act of something completely disconnected. It's so easy for, you know, the sin of that act to bleed into all of those Moments of you know arousal or or fantasy or whatever it is, and therefore it starts to poison
0: you and that's exactly what it did to me i mean it it destroyed me, and I think that's one reason why I couldn't have any sustainable relationships with the same sex that Eve Tushnetter is talking about because you know if my sexual orientation is if the sex act is okay or or, or let me start over mm-hmm. if the sex act is not Okay, if it is sinful in the eyes of God, then why is looking at a man and finding him physically and sexually beautiful and being aroused by that okay? I don't think it can be. I don't think it can be. Either they both go together or or not or not exactly or not. and so yeah it it's uh it's complicated and then of course deeply enmeshed in the sexual experience of homosexuality is the deep profound intimacy and attraction to beauty of the same sex and so for me, with men, I am sexually attracted to them, and I've always been deeply sexual. I have sex about, like, once a week, and that's just the way it is, and that's the way my adult life has been for a long time. I I have pretty consistent sex, and I go nuts if I don't. And I've been a sexual being pretty much every week since I was a teenager in some way, and but that isn't the only aspect of it for me. Of course not. There's also the fact that I love the extraordinary beauty of men. I love the company of men. Mm-hmm. I love the sound of a man's voice. I love, and, and it's all the little subtle things. I love the curvature of his shoulders. I love the, the shape of his spine. I love just all of those things, all of those subtleties that come with a gay orientation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And profound closeness and friendship and intimacy that's very special that can often happen with gay people however for me it is impossible to divorce that to take that out of the out of sexuality it's one whole package for me they're so deeply intertwined and to tear them apart is simply to do it a vivisection
1: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. you know getting back to something you said earlier
1: which i, I wanted to comment on it's that it's the concept that It wasn't until you and John found each other and found the relationship you have that you feel that you became available for having close relationships with men, gay or straight. Yes. And I think what that speaks to is the fact that there is a very real and tangible hunger for A fullness or completeness of relationship in your life which you have found in John that until that hunger was satiated it's almost like you were afraid to have relationships friendship relationships with men because you almost couldn't trust yourself exactly you couldn't trust yourself exactly I have felt that my entire life and so it's so easy to see parallels of this if someone has a strong at- attraction towards something, we might even use the word addiction towards something. And I'm I'm not a specialist in this, so I'm going to say this very carefully cuz I don't want to get you in trouble. But, uh, but I appreciate that. No. <laughs> but I I'm thinking, you know, let's let's say for example, someone, someone who is, you know, has a true hunger for something, but all they're met with is prohibition. Yeah. What have we seen in the history of the human species? About that scenario, doesn't it often just drive them towards it and almost to an overconsumption of it? Yeah. Getting back to something you said earlier, I would like to pause American culture for a year and say, can we do an experiment? Here's the experiment. Let same-sex attracted people live in monogamous situations, monogamous context relationships for one year and we want all the sociologists I want all the medical professionals I want all the people in the legal system I want all of you to take careful studies because we want real statistical evidence when this is over let's track behavioral and medical and psychological activity on these people let's measure wellness in a year. And then let's compare that to the overall wellness of the society at large. Yeah. And let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. We might be amazed because every road, for some, every road they go down ends with a sign, no, or, you know, you're going down the, the road called prohibited. Yeah. You can't go down this road. And therefore, I mean, I've just seen it in, in the lives of so many people where prohibition has almost been the worst it has been the worst scenario for them and resulted in fairly tragic events Mm -hmm. and i and i don't say that so if someone's listening and say oh man that is such a pathetic attempt at just trying to you know give credence to a life of licentiousness that's not it at all that's not what i'm saying i believe in a very strong moral sexual ethic for both gay people and straight people Mm -hmm. so that's not what i'm i am not asking for that so don't anyone read that into my words i'm saying let's hold up a really strong biblical sexual ethic before all people and say for one year america we're all going to do this and let's see what it's going to look like in a year. I bet we'll see a difference.
0: I think that's a great idea. Now we just need to find someone to fund it. We can see we can start. <clears> we well, can, I'm, we I'm can start sure. submitting grants. Not, I don't know. <laughs> finding, finding grants.
1: But I, I, would, I would say this is an aspect of this conversation
0: that we don't hear enough about. I agree. She said something that just really threw me. And maybe I'm misunderstanding what she said. But I heard it and I was just like, wait, what? What? And I, I went back on the video and listened to it again. I listened to it several times and I was like, I really do not understand what she's saying here. And I kind of need help understanding this and maybe I'm misunderstanding her. But she said that these same sex friendships, these forms of love continue to persist and continue to have consequences after death, unlike marriage. And she said that, and she said because marriage is till death do us part. But in the biblical narrative, you see that after Jonathan's death, there are still commitments that David made to his, to his children and so on. The commitment between Ruth and Naomi had profound ramifications in the lineage of Christ. And so the implication being that marriage just ends at death and doesn't have any consequences after death, whereas same-sex friendship do and i'm just like that is on its face false that is not true what about what about children what about The ongoing consequences of this union in the world, the ripple effect through society and communities. What about the communities that they form? What about the unions between their friends that they, I mean, there are so many consequences, legal, financial, physical, relational, spiritual of a marriage that do persist long after death. This statement just totally kind of blew my mind. Am I hearing it wrong? Did you pick up on that? No, I picked up on it too, and I was not clear. Yeah. So
1: I you've you've articulated it very well.
0: So Eve Tushnet, if I'm misunderstanding any of your words here in any of this talk, please uh, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, here's here's some of a quote. You know, she's hoping. To know that this is someone who loves us better than our parents could, no matter how supportive they are, better than any human being could, better than our best friend, better than our spouse, someone whose love for us is unyielding beyond any possible human love, and someone who knows us and loves us precisely in the areas where we most doubt his love. And then she ends her talk by saying, Lord, I love your commands because I know who you are saying that if we have a right understanding of God, then we will willfully submit ourselves to the traditional ethic. This really infuriated me. On its face, it sounds good. You know, in a lot of ways, it sounds good. And I think in some ways it is tangibly good. This really upset me. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of an interview I heard with Christopher West, who's one of the modern theologians on the theology of the body and one of the great articulators of the theology of the body and it was an interview with science mike and michael gungor and you know they were pressing him to talk about sexual minorities and gender minorities and you know the because the theology of the body does not permit same sex relationships it doesn't permit a lot you know it it's very restrictive uh and and christopher west said something that i think is so hurtful and so awful he said I'm going to paraphrase. If you don't, oh, something like, if you don't hear the beautiful music of what God is doing, or if you don't see the dance of what God is doing, then you won't understand how beautiful this actually is. So until you see the extraordinary beauty of what God is accomplishing, then you won't see how beautiful this is. This turns into a horrible form of gaslighting because essentially we are saying for those who find this an agony, who find the celibate life, and agony, they will just keep being told, you don't see how beautiful God is yet. And that is going to fuck people up. Mm -hmm. It fucked me up a lot. Mm -hmm. I want to end this episode with a quote from the theologian Richard Beck from his blog, Experimental Theology. And he he wrote this years ago, but I kind of tucked it away because I, I thought it was so profound. What I see in this theology is internal consistency, what I see in this theology is a lot of internal consistency. Not always. There are, there are little mm, shaky places for me. I don't think it is contrary to reason within itself. But that is not good enough. Mm-hmm. We have to look at the consequences globally. We have to look at the consequences socially. And that is where my great concern lies. Richard Beck says this, When theology and doctrine become separated from emotion— we end up with something dysfunctional and even monstrous when he says emotion think experience when he says emotion think something much broader mm-hmm. than than that think experience. Think our interactions and experiences in the world. When theology and doctrine become separated from emotion, we end up with something dysfunctional and even monstrous. A theology or doctrinal system that has become decoupled from emotion is going to look emotionally stunted and even inhuman. What I'm describing here might be captured by the tag orthodox Elixithemia. By orthodox, I mean the intellectual pursuit of right belief, and by elixithemia I mean someone who is, theologically speaking, emotionally and socially deaf and dumb, even theologically sociopathic. Elixithymia, etymologically without words for emotions, is a, synony- is a symptom characteristic of individuals who have difficulty understanding their own and others' emotions you can think of elixithemia as being the opposite of what is called emotional intelligence. Orthodox elixithemia is produced when the intellectual facets of Christian theology, in the pursuit of correct and right belief, become decoupled from emotion, empathy, and fellow feeling. Orthodox elixithemics are like patients with ventromedial prefrontal cortex brain damage. Their reasoning may be sophisticated and internally consistent, but it is disconnected from human emotion, and in this case, human experience. That's my addition. Mm -hmm. And without Christ-shaped caring to guide the chain of calculation, we wind up with the theological equivalent of preferring to scratch a doctrinal finger over preventing destruction of the whole world. Logically and doctrinally, such preferences can be justified. They are not contrary to reason, but they are inhuman and monstrous. Emotion, not reason, is what has gone missing. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so I think the Revoice Conference is an attempt to reconcile human suffering with doctrine. I do think that, to me, it's still suffering, though, from orthodox elixithemia. Mm-hmm. It is not far enough. It is not liberated enough. And that is my opinion. It does not take into consideration the profound implications of human suffering, and it has not properly integrated them into a theology that is life-giving. And that, I guess, are my thoughts on this talk. Yeah. So we've gone way over... this episode. Uh, So we're going to finish it up here. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so sorry for all the ambient noise. We'll probably try to fix that for the next episode, but I hope you still enjoyed this conversation. I want to invite anyone who disagrees with me to comment, to uh, enter into a dialogue with me. You can find me at sbradfordlong.com. You can reach me there. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen B. Long. And I would love to hear from you. If any of the speakers or leaders from Revoice want to come onto the show and have a conversation and maybe correct some of the things that I have misunderstood. I'm willing to be wrong. I'm willing to admit that I might have heard something that isn't there and uh, I'm open to hearing what you have to say. So if you want to come onto to the show to have a conversation, my table's open. Well, I have to thank my team, Justin Dozier Bryant and Carson Green for helping to keep me sane. The music is by The Jelly Rocks from the album Bang & Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you listen to music. This show is edited and written by me, Stephen Long, and is mastered by Matt Langston, and it is a production of Rock Candy Media, and I will see you next week.